As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. From the book of the prophet Zechariah, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. I must begin by saying that it was quite gratifying to hear Father Matthew preach on the book of the prophet Isaiah last week. We've had a run of gems from the prophets since Trinity Sunday, this text from Zechariah being by no means the least, but certainly the latest. Today, Zechariah, the priest of the second temple, looks forward to a day when the Lord himself will camp at his house, the temple, like a guard, seeing the people with his own eyes, defending them against all oppressors. Zechariah is, like most of the prophets, looking forward to a day when the Lord Himself will renew His presence in a renewed kingdom. Now let me just set the scene a bit. In this period, around 520 B.C., the people have returned from exile in Babylon to rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem as well as the temple. You can read more about this in Ezra and Nehemiah if you'd like. The Persian king Darius has ordered that supplies be given to those undertaking this task, but it is a time filled with uncertainty. There are those who attack this important work. There are those who undermine it. There are those who threaten it. And there is little doubt that the laborers and the priests are undertaking a work that might not survive. It is about reconstructing their way of life as best they can. They're desirous to set up a new and faithful kingdom, but it is very much a kingdom still in exile. There is no king, and worse, God's presence is gone. You remember the Ark of the Covenant? If you want more on that, you can watch Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's good for the kids, you know. Uh, You can fast forward through a few spots, but it holds up. Where is the Ark of the Covenant? Nobody knows. (laughs) It's been missing since the 6th century B.C. And yet, these builders press on in hope. They are, to put it simply and in Zechariah's words, prisoners of hope. I don't know if you can identify at all with this very provocative idea being a prisoner of hope. There are no bars around you. You are free. But there is a hope which is constantly welling up inside you that won't let you go. It captivates your imagination. Even when everything is going wrong, positively everything, when society is collapsing around you, when there is little earthly reason for hope, you are a captive of another kind to another kind and another quality of hope. Hope that is heavenly. Hope in things unseen. Christians live in this kind of captivity as prisoners of hope. We often have no earthly reason to press on. Societies rise and fall. Disease comes. War comes. Trials come. People disappoint us. Leaders disappoint us. There is daily the temptation to say, Good Lord, is this all there is? But you know that the reason you are here this morning is that you have been captivated imprisoned by the hope of the gospel, engaged in what Tolkien called the long defeat. This past week, one of you sent me some words from Tolkien in describing the hobbits. Gandalf is trying to enlighten King Theoden, who knows nothing of hobbits, concerning what the life of a hobbit is like. And Gandalf says this, These hobbits will sit on the edge of ruin, 
and discuss the pleasures of the table or the small doings of their fathers, grandfathers, and great-grandfathers and remoter cousins to the ninth degree if you encourage them with undue patience. Some other time would be more fitting for the history of smoking. Sounds like fun. A prisoner of hope sits on the very edge of ruin and does not blink. A prisoner of hope will live in a society that seems to be completely unraveling and will pour a drink and light a pipe and pray and sing and dance because he does not expect salvation of an earthly sort. Today we read of prisoners of hope, those who set their minds on the Spirit and by the Spirit have life and peace, who walk not according to the flesh, but with hopes set firmly upon God. These are not the wise and understanding, but little children, those who have set their shoulders under the easy yoke and light burden of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who rebuilt the city of Jerusalem, who rebuilt the walls, who rebuilt the temple, they were not wise. In fact, they were a laughingstock of the whole area around them. People used to joke at them, laugh at them, point at them, say, you fools. I mean, you have to be rather wild to experience the complete decimation of a city by foreign powers and go in with really no power in, in yourself and go rebuild it. No military power, nothing. In their own sight, they must have thought themselves foolish to rebuild what could not be rebuilt, to labor away with the odds against them, but they can do nothing else. They are captive, imprisoned in the joyous hope that can only come from the living God. And these prisoners of hope we read of in Zechariah will labor away straight up to the day of the Incarnation, when one of their own, the daughter of Zion, will shout and sing, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He who is mighty has magnified me and holy is His name. The daughter of Jerusalem, this daughter of Jerusalem, a daughter of the very peace of God will sing, He has put down the mighty from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. She will say this even as the presence of the Lord, the King, is within her, especially as it. Zechariah envisions this rejoicing nation as a young woman, not a great warrior, not a king, but a young woman singing with great rejoicing even as everything around her has become dark and evil and filled with despair. She is a prisoner of hope. And in the church, we understand her to be Mary, the very summation of Israel as the daughter of Zion, to whom the angel Gabriel cries out, not high, not hail, but rejoice, rejoice. And she rejoices that in her the promise God had made and had made over and over and over again would come to pass. God Himself pitching His tent in the midst of His people in the very womb of His people. She is emblematic of a people espoused to God, a bride who welcomes her bridegroom with rejoicing and singing. In 1917, let me say this first. I've been uh, reminiscing as of late, becoming a kind of uh, sentimental about previous days. You may know that I spent the first years of my life in Seattle, 
And I always remember that they were still doing duck and cover, duck and cover drills in schools back in those days. I was thinking about, you know, oh, God forbid children should have to wear masks to schools. I had to do duck and cover drills. <laughs> and it was, this, it was this wild time where you were a little kid knowing that nuclear missiles from Kanchaka were just aimed right at your head, and, and it was a very sobering way to grow up. And maybe some of you remember uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis or something like it. Um, a very sobering thing. In 1917, just before the Russian Revolution, Mary, it is said, appeared to a few Portuguese children at Fatima and told them to pray that Russia would be consecrated to her. Just as their own country was falling to Marxism, these children were taught to adore the Lord Jesus Christ, to make spiritual sacrifices, and to pray for the conversion of Russia. Only a few months before the October Revolution, very few could have predicted that Catholic witness in Poland, guided and directed by a Polish pope, would be one of the most important factors in the fall of the Soviet bloc. But it was. Today, against all odds, against all the worldly prophecies of communist triumph in the world, the Russian Orthodox Church today is growing so fast that the number of Christians outpaces their ability to provide priests and parishes. In the past 30 years, the Russians have gone from zero seminaries to well over 100, and they're packed. Now, I don't know if you saw this, but a few weeks ago, the Polish government declared Jesus Christ as the king of Poland. Imagine that. They just declared him king. That is not the Poland of my early childhood. It's not the Poland I thought of. Those formerly atheistic societies are now more Christian than any society in the West, including our own. How does this happen? How is this possible? Well, Zechariah provides us with deep insight. Zechariah is writing in a time when the Lord himself in the flesh, he's writing about a time when the Lord himself in the flesh will return to Mount Zion and establish an everlasting peace through the blood of his covenant. This is not some kind of liberal democratic society. It is a kingdom. The difference is very important. I mean, a liberal democratic society is operated by laws. A kingdom is operated by a king. And any laws that are there serve the king and his interests. That's it. That's how it works. It is also not some kind of a utopia where everything is perfect and everyone enjoys prosperity and liberty and wealth. It is, put simply, a kingdom. And when the people have cause to be disillusioned by the kings of not long ago who are constantly disappointing them, and when they don't have a king except for a foreign one, this is undoubtedly good news. The good news is that the coming king is righteous and one having salvation. The good news is that the coming king is humble, not an earthly picture of power, but a heavenly one. Now, let me break this down a little bit about what Zechariah says of this king and this kingdom, what he actually says about it. It is a reprimand to those of us today who look for a salvation that is of the age, more zeitgeist than the Holy Spirit. First, to have a righteous king is very good news. It means that that king will bring vindication for his people. He will be a servant to the people, very much like David. He will keep his promises. He will drive away all who would assault and condemn the people. This means that he is a king who brings salvation. Now, this is not salvation in the sense of going to heaven when you die. 
nor the salvation of a prosperous and free earthly life. It is specifically the salvation of a renewed kingdom on earth with a righteous king who provides that salvation. It is salvation which is won by a king who establishes peace. And through peace, vindication for his people. What's completely wild, unexpected about this text is that Zechariah looks forward to a day when the weapons of the people will be cut off, utterly cut off. The chariot, the war horse, and the battle bow will all be cut off. Think about this for a minute. Just think about it. What would happen if Congress just completely emptied the military budgets? demilitarized our country. I would not sleep well at night. (laughs) But that's what's being spoken of here. A demilitarized and yet unified and peaceful Israel. An Israel full of grain and wine where maidens sing out to each other a little bit drunk. Happy. Rejoicing. A vigorous people through whom the nations of the world will be blessed with the Lord's peace. They have not gained peace through raw power, but they have gained peace because of the vicarious work of a king who fights unseen battles on their behalf. And finally, and most shockingly, the king is humble. He's riding on a donkey. This is unmistakably looking forward to Palm Sunday. You cannot mistake it. It just rings in your ears like humble and riding on a donkey. Well, that sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Yes, it does. But I want to pause here and consider what it means purely in Zechariah's terms for this king to be humble and riding on a donkey. First of all, this word which the ESV translates as humble is actually something much more like poor or lowly. So not only is the king righteous, a servant of the people, and he is presiding over a demilitarized kingdom, which is nevertheless peaceful, on top of all that, the icing on the cake, the king is poor. How is that good news? How? Well, it's not good news for the rich. It's not good news to the powerful. It's good news to the poor. It's good news to those who have borne the burden of centuries of war, invasion, siege of the city, and foreign oppression. It's good news only to prisoners of hope. In verse 11, Zechariah speaks on the Lord's behalf of a covenant in blood which cements the release of prisoners from the waterless pit. If you go to Jerusalem today, you can go walk around the city and and, uh, there are various cisterns throughout the city. One of my favorite is in the Coptic Orthodox, the Egyptian uh, 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 church and their little section there. And they'll take you down into their cistern and show you and talk about prophets that that were thrown into it by tradition. And there's water in the bottom of it. Of course, it's a cistern. But Zechariah is speaking of a waterless cistern, where if you're thrown down there, you will die of dehydration. These are prisoners who have no reason to hope outside of their God. So now we've gone straight from Palm Sunday to Maundy Thursday and into Good Friday. Jesus is giving his disciples a drink which they cannot have otherwise. 
the blood of a new covenant. And the next day, cementing that by becoming this covenant sacrifice in his very person before descending into the waterless pit of death to rescue those bound in its prison. That is to say this, whatever this king has become, and whatever he is and whatever he has, becomes the property of those with whom he makes this covenant in his blood. And what is it that he has? He doesn't have riches. He doesn't have might. He doesn't have military glory. He doesn't have earthly power. In fact, he had spurned all of those as temptations. He is poor and humble. And who can that be but Jesus Himself? Jesus who is crowned with a crown of thorns, robed in a purple robe that clings to the raw and tattered flesh of His back, who is enthroned upon the cross with a title above Him that is meant to mock and deride Him shedding His humble and righteous and royal blood for those who have been captivated by hope in Him. Today, beloved, we go straight to the cross, to the mysteries of this altar, to be renewed in the covenant of royal and humble blood. You and I are prisoners of hope today. We sit on the edge of utter ruin, and we cannot be given to despair or fear. We sit in these pews with masks to cover faces of joy and hope, even though we do not know what will come. Friends, I want to preach the good news today of what it means to be a prisoner of hope. We can say without a doubt that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free, and yet we can still call ourselves prisoners of hope. Because to be a prisoner of hope is to be one who is truly free, free indeed. A prisoner of hope might actually be in prison, and yet he is the freest man who could walk the earth. A prisoner of hope might be severely disabled, or living on the street, or facing unbelievable suffering or disease, but he is still a prisoner of hope. Because that person has, as Peter puts it, been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He has not been left in the pit. That prisoner of hope cannot be defeated, cannot become captive to circumstances no matter how awful they are, does not despair when in the midst of trials or persecution or hunger or thirst or feeling like the tide of society has turned against him or that the Supreme Court has yet again voted against him. To be a prisoner of hope means that you cannot get away from hope. You cannot run from it. You cannot stuff it away in a closet or bury it in the ground. You cannot break out of its fences because once hope has hold on you, you are in a word unshakable. No wind will blow you off course. No trial will put you to despair. No wind of doctrine will persuade you. No sin will confound you. Because hope is the basis upon which you live your life. And it is not a hope based in human goodness or the idea that we're eventually going to get all this right and do it well, but hope which springs as a virtue from God from being joined to God as a human being through the resurrection of the One who is both God and man, who is that humble, poor, righteous, and saving King. So what ought we do to cultivate this hope imprisoned as we are to it? The first thing I want to say this morning is that the Christian 
and Christians have done this for centuries, will look to Mary, the daughter of Zion, who rejoices and sings in the midst of a collapsing world because she holds in her womb the Lord of life as a model for what it means to do this. She faces unimaginable sorrow, torturous defeat, and yet she is the mother of each and every prisoner of hope. The joy of the resurrection touched her broken and pierced heart and made her sing with a joy greater than that of the Magnificat. If you've come here broken, pierced, defeated, sorrowful, confused, wondering when will all this madness end, look to Mary. She doesn't expect it will, and yet she rejoices in hope. Second, The Christian will will rejoice in suffering, rejoice in trial, knowing that God can use the imprisonment to build up hope and to sanctify us in the truth. We can overcome every trial, every injustice, because the hope of the kingdom is not a hope that things will get better by our own work. It is a hope which is fixed firmly on the God who saves. There are those today who are protesting in the streets against God in the name of justice forgetting that a world without God is a world without hope. The Christian protests against injustice in a very different way, protesting in the name of God, believing against all evidence to the contrary that God alone can create and make justice. Specifically, God in the person of Jesus Christ, who alone can bring peace that is lasting. The Christian has faith that a righteous and humble king is coming to save, and therefore there's lots of work to be done, even as we sit on the edge of defeat. Third, the Christian constantly renews this hope, this living hope, by having thirsts assuaged and hungers filled through communion with Jesus Christ the King. Ascending the altar, not for worldly comfort, but for heavenly peace. If there was a time in recent memory where Christians ever needed the hope and the grace of the Eucharist more, I don't know of it. It is now. Beloved, let us live and live truly as prisoners of hope. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.